Before we get into this episode, I know you may think, well, I read the title to this episode, and you know, I really don't have patience with bleeding disorders. I mean, that's for somebody else. That's for a referral center. That's for a hematologist or specifically just for MFM. We don't have this kind of patient in our population. Um, We likely do. (laughs) The problem is, is that they go undiagnosed for years and then can present during a pregnancy with some unanticipated bleeding. We're going to get into the specific kind of bleeding that can happen with this disorder in this episode. But the idea that, well, I just don't have these kind of patients. It doesn't apply to me is probably incorrect because von Willebrand disease is the most common inherited disorder among American women. It has a prevalence anywhere from 0.8 up to 1.3, depending on who you read. The point is, it's out there. But the time to make this diagnosis isn't when they're pregnant. Ideally, it should be done before pregnancy. In this episode, we're going to review an ACOG committee opinion, which was 785. That's back from 2009. But we're going to start there just briefly, just to show the importance of von Willebrand disease and its screening. We've got to look for this, especially in patients who present, of course, with heavy menstrual bleeding. And then we're going to come up to date, up to March 2023, with a new clinical expert series that just came out from the college. This clinical expert series is von Willebrand disease, hemophilia, and other inherited bleeding disorders in pregnancy. What do you do with somebody with von Willebrand disease who now is pregnant and you're anticipating delivery? Do these patients need a C-section? And what's the best test to evaluate for this? We're going to answer all of this in this episode. We're also going to cover the three main types of von Willebrand disease. All right, y'all ready? Let's cover von Willebrand disease in pregnancy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Okay, uh, well, as a little aside, I was just told that I said clinical expert series the first time during the intro kind of weird, uh, and I'm not redoing it. It is the way it is. Look, here's what's interesting, and you all know this already. I've alluded to this before. I do have some wicked ADD, and sometimes the brain goes faster than the mouth. Is that weird or what? Uh, then you throw in the Texas slash Hispanic accent, uh, and it's a recipe for just catastrophe. It's amazing this podcast actually gets launched. Uh, with with some of the some of the language issues that gets thrown out there hey look i'm real i'm telling it like it is and i'm not recording that if i said clinical expert series kind of weird during the intro well you all got it right clinical expert series fine move on Because there are three different types of von Willebrand's disease, I mean, three main categories, and then there's some subcategories underneath, but there are three main categories that we're going to discuss in a moment. There's this varied presentation of women with von Willebrand disease. Now, its most severe form, uh, I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? But thankfully, the most severe form, which we'll address in a minute, uh, is not the most common. And the most common is a kind that gives this kind of uh, indolent, uh, kind of annoying, persistent bleeding throughout adolescence and throughout life's episodes uh, that can get missed. That's why in ACOG's committee opinion, which is number 785, right, 785, it addresses this screening need in early age. The title of this committee opinion is Screening and Management of Bleeding Disorders in Adolescents with Heavy Menstrual Bleeding. The idea is if somebody presents 
especially during their teenage years with heavy menstrual cycles or with a history of bleeding during dental procedures, persistent nosebleeds, mucosal bleeds, or even a history of recurrent uh, ovarian hemorrhagic cysts, that's a flag. The exact same thing is reviewed in this clinical expert series from March 2023. In that episode, Pacheco goes on to say, quote, a personal history that is suggestive of an underlying bleeding disorder includes heavy menstrual bleeding since menarche, iron deficiency anemia, prolonged bleeding from trivial cuts, epistasis, otherwise nosebleeds, bruising without injury, prolonged or excessive bleeding after dental extractions or procedures, unexplained bleeding after surgery or miscarriage, and even recurrent hemorrhagic ovarian cysts. All of these things are risk factors for some underlying disorder, and since von Willebrand deficiency, von Willebrand disease is the most common type, herein is the tie-in. Also remember that it can affect postpartum hemorrhage, which is the focus of this episode, how to deal with von Willebrand disease in pregnancy, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, even how it presents, because it's not immediate type of postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, remember the four T's? We'll cover the four T's that we all learned in medical school and nursing school, but it's actually delayed postpartum hemorrhage, right? So just remember when somebody comes in and they're talking about heavy menstrual bleeding, it's a good thing and, and, and we require uh, a check for infection. We require a look for endocrinopathy like thyroid disorders. However, we should not avoid a screen for hematological conditions. And in talking about screening and in an evaluation for these patients, we can go back to that committee opinion 785 from September 2019, which is screening and management of bleeding disorders in adolescents with heavy menstrual bleeding. Because in that, there's three main lessons there. The first is that physical exam of the patient who presents with acute heavy menstrual bleeding should include assessment of hemodynamic stability like orthostasis and, of course, make sure she's not tachycardic. But in adolescent girls with heavy menstrual bleeding, ACOG states that a speculum examination typically is not required unless you suspect that she's bleeding from some kind of vaginal mucosal tear like in an assault or something else. The third point in this committee opinion is that ACOG states, quote, evaluation of an adolescent girl who presents with heavy menstrual bleeding should include an assessment for anemia from blood loss, including serum ferritin, the presence of an endocrine disorder leading to anovulation, and evaluation for the presence of a bleeding disorder, end quote. It's that evaluation of a bleeding disorder that's the whole focus of this episode, and we're going to talk about the specific kind of lab test to order if you suspect von Willebrand disease. We're going to get into that in just a moment. All right, I think we've made the point. Somebody comes in with a history of heavy bleeding or weird bleeding in general. You should look for von Willebrand disease along with other kind of weird bleeding disorders, including thrombocytopenia. That's a given. But what is von Willebrand disease? Von Willebrand disease is attributed to a deficiency of normal von Willebrand factor. That's a multimeric protein that's made in either the vascular endothelium or bone marrow megakaryocytes. Besides its role in attaching platelets to injured endothelium, von Willebrand factor protects factor 8 from degradation in the circulation. So remember, if somebody has von Willebrand disease, it can affect factor 8. So that's something else that you need to test. And we're going to check for that when we review the test for this condition in just a moment. Deficiency of normal von Willebrand factor results in a bleeding disorder of various severity, depending on the von Willebrand factor level, factor 8's level, and other factors like its activity level. 
Here's a clinical pearl if you're ever asked, what's the specific type of bleeding with von Willebrand disease? And we already mentioned the historical factors, right? How they can present. But just remember this key difference as opposed to bleeding with hemophilia. Von Willebrand disease is characterized by mucosal bleeding, all right? Mucocutaneous bleeds, like the nosebleed, the heavy menstrual bleeding, the easy bruising that we discussed just a moment ago. This is opposed to deep tissue bleeding, like in the muscles or the joint space, that is typical of hemophilia. So Von Willebrand disease, remember, mucocutaneous bleeding. Okay, so you have a patient who presents, you suspect von Willebrand disease, or you're just doing your due diligence. You're looking for thyroid abnormalities, you're checking for a CBC, and you want to make sure that the patient does not have von Willebrand disease. Okay, what are the labs that you order? Well, lab testing should include, as we just said, a CBC for platelet number, activated partial thromboplastin time, that's the PTT, and a PT. Now, this is to screen for other clotting factor abnormalities. Also remember to obtain a fibrinogen and specific testing for von Willebrand disease. This is von Willebrand factor antigen, von Willebrand factor activity, and factor 8 coagulant activity. All right, so check for the antigen, the activity, and then factor 8 coagulant activity. Man, when I say medicine moves fast, I mean, it really does. Even the way that we test for these disorders has changed. I mean, in the past, we did something called the Aristocetin cofactor test, and that's okay. But according to a recent American Society of Hematology and the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis and the National Hemophilia Foundation, they all suggest that newer assays for von Willebrand factor activity be ordered. These are the ones that measure the actual platelet binding activity of von Willebrand factor. The problem is not a lot of labs do this. So it's important to know what you're ordering or just call down to your lab, whether that's whatever it is, LabCorp, CPL, your own hospital lab, and just find out what they're doing. But very few actually order these specialized tests that's recommended based on 2021 guidelines. That's the actual platelet binding activity of von Willebrand factor. But of course, if your lab doesn't do that, then ordering the more traditional, the von Willebrand factor, aristocetin cofactor assay, whether it's automated or non-automated, I mean, that's fine. I mean, the idea is to look for it and test for it. And don't forget to check that factor eight coagulant activity as well. Now, don't let the history fool you because this is why you need to do a full evaluation with lab work because factor seven deficiency, Factor 7 deficiency is considered the most common autosomal recessive bleeding disorder. Factor 7 deficiency is also characterized by variable mucocutaneous bleeding. It's like, oh, great. I just figured that out that that was von Willebrand factor. And now it can be factor 7. That is correct. That's why you have to do a full evaluation. So, it, it again, it's, it's a good thing to check for playlists. Check PT, PTT. Check von Willebrand factor, both the antigen and activity. Check factor 8 and throw in there also factor seven. Yep. You see, medicine. Ah, I love it. It's never as easy as you think. So you've entertained the possibility of von Willebrand disease in a patient based on history. You've ordered the appropriate tests and then the results come back and they're kind of funky. Remember to always use your consultation with your hematologist for anything that's kind of wacky because we got to place the patient in the right type of von Willebrand disease, right? Because there's three main types. Now, type two has some subtypes, but the big thing is that there's three main types. 
type 1 von Willebrand disease accounts for 80% of those patients that are diagnosed with this condition. That's 80%, so vastly the most common. So that's the clinical pearl. What kind of von Willebrand disease is the most common? Type 1. Type 1 disease is due to a reduced level of normal von Willebrand factor, all right? So von Willebrand factor antigen and von Willebrand factor activity levels are proportionately decreased in this class. So look, it looks normal, it's physically okay, and its activity is fine. You just have less of it than you should. Based on definition, based on standards universally by labs, the threshold for diagnosing this is if the von Willebrand factor level is 0.30 or less. All right. In other words, that's 30% compared to the standard reference level. So 0.30 international units per 1 ml or less is type 1. Type 2 is the second most common type. So type 1 is 80%. That's like almost everybody. And then type 2 is almost everybody else. All right. That's where the level of von Willebrand factor antigen is normal. Like, hey, man, you check the box. You got the, the right number, but it don't work. <laughs> so that's a functional deficiency. All right, so type 1 is a quantitative deficiency, just a little bit less. Type 2 is a functional deficiency. And then type 3 von Willebrand disease is extremely rare. This only affects about 1 in a million individuals because it's just really bad. It's attributed to undetectable levels of von Willebrand factor and very low levels of factor 8. So this is severe bleeding abnormalities, right? So that's complete absence. So type 1 is, hey, you've got it, just less. Type 2 is, you've got a normal amount, it just don't work. And then type 3 is complete absence, which obviously is the most severe. All right, fine. We've talked about the historical presenting risk factors. We've talked about lab evaluations and the three main types of von Willebrand disease. Now let's get into what we really wanted to talk about, which is how this affects pregnancy. Now, this really isn't an antepartum issue. This is a delivery issue. So we're going to talk about delivery considerations. Do these patients require a C-section to protect the child? Uh, when should we do factor concentrate? Do these patients need other medications? And what kind of bleeding do these patients present with? Let's cover that coming up next. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The best time to screen for these are not when the patient is pregnant because pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state and it affects some of the tests that are ordered for a coagulation. We all know that. We've learned that, but sometimes we forget. Remember that there's an increase in von Willebrand factor during pregnancy. There's also an increase in factor 8 and there's an increase in fibrinogen. 
There's also an increase in some clotting factors, but there's also a decrease in the natural anticoagulant protein S, and there's a decrease in fibrinolytic activity. There is also an increase in mean platelet volume, meaning they get bigger, and platelet reactivity, although there's usually a decrease in the absolute platelet number, right? So they become larger, they have larger volume, but platelet number tends to decrease as pregnancy advances. Still considered thrombocytopenia under 150,000, but pathological thrombocytopenia is under 100,000. So because pregnancy alters von Willebrand factor and factor eight numbers. That's why you're not supposed to do its ideal testing for screening then. But if a patient does have a pre-existing history, then it's okay to track levels during pregnancy, specifically in the third trimester. Now, just a quick word about some DNA tests for hemostasis during pregnancy. Remember, right now we're talking about von Willebrand factor and bleeding disorders, but going the opposite way, like for thrombophilia, uh, you can do DNA-based tests, like factor V Leiden mutation. I mean, that's a DNA mutation. That's not going to matter if they're pregnant or not. That doesn't change. But anything that's activity levels or certain actual uh, coagulant factors and von Willebrand factor, those are going to change during pregnancy. So you cannot do that as a screen during pregnancy, but DNA-based tests, uh, those are okay, all right? Remember, that's more for thrombophilia. That's the opposite problem that we're talking about here. We're talking about bleeding disorders in this episode, but just wanted to make that point that it's not that you cannot check for any kind of bleeding disorders in pregnancy. You just can't check for true numbers or activity, but DNA-based tests uh, on, a, on a genetic or molecular level, then that's fine. All right, that's just a little aside. Oh, and in talking about genetic tests, unlike for other types of hemophilia that do carry a genetic basis, and you can do a specific kind of mutation check for that, von Willebrand disease usually doesn't have a genetic test associated with it. I mean, that's rarely done because it doesn't really affect any kind of OB management. But in hemophilia cares, identifying the underlying mutation before pregnancy is potentially of great value, all right? So remember, von Willebrand disease, we're not going to really order a genetic panel for that. But for hemophilia, that's a whole other issue and not the focus of this episode. But again, as we're talking about DNA tests, just a quick word about that. In labor and delivery, delayed postpartum hemorrhage can be their presentation in patients with this condition, all right? Now, the immediate postpartum hemorrhage is rarely associated with this kind of inherited bleeding disorder, and acute kind of bleedings like at delivery, whether it's vaginal or C-section, should point to the four Ts. Remember, tone, tissue, trauma, and then, ironically, lack of thrombin, usually because of a DIC issue, whether that's because of severe infection, maternal sepsis, or a, a dilutional coagulopathy or consumptive coagulopathy, right? Remember the four Ts, tone, tissue, trauma, and then thrombin, which ironically is the lack of thrombin. Remember, 80% of postpartum hemorrhage is due to number one, which is lack of tone. But coagulopathies, including von Willebrand factor, can present as delayed postpartum hemorrhage. This is why it's important to remember this diagnosis when a patient presents with this condition and it's greater than the first 24 hours postpartum. I mean, still do your usual workup, of course, make sure there's no infection, make sure there's no undiagnosed uh, lacerations, make sure her platelets are okay. I mean, that's all part of the normal workup. But delayed postpartum hemorrhage should raise a flag for screening for von Willebrand disease after the immediate postpartum interval, right? Or, or at least to the first four to six weeks to let the coagulation, the hematological patterns of pregnancy revert back to normal. 
But this is why it's important to screen for this either at the first prenatal visit. Hey, are your cycles super bad? Have you ever been told you have a bleeding disorder? Or ideally, once again, before they're pregnant. So it's okay to screen during pregnancy verbally by history, but screening based on lab values can be difficult for the reasons we've already discussed. For patients with von Willebrand disease, it's important to check to see where they're at sometime in the late third trimester as they approach delivery, specifically around 36 weeks, because this can help plan to see if she's at greater risk for delayed postpartum hemorrhage. In this clinical expert series, the authors are very clear that there's no randomized trials to guide treatment at time of delivery for patients with von Willebrand disease, all right? So what we're going to cover next is basically accepted norm, it's standard practice, but that's mainly from expert opinion, all right? Now, there are some anecdotal, there's cohort series, but there's no RCTs to give level one evidence. So any recommendations regarding this, uh, whether it's the dose used or recommendations for therapy or duration of therapy, remember that these are all based on observational studies or expert opinion. All right, we come back. We're going to get into the specifics for management here. When is desmopressin allowed? Why is it not first line? What about factor concentrates? And two big questions. Are epidurals safe in this population? And is a C-section necessary? Let's talk about that coming up. For patients with this condition, it is general consensus that factor levels should be maintained above 0.5 international units per ml for at least three days after vaginal delivery and at least five days after C-section, okay? So remember the diagnosis for deficient factor was 0.3, remember that 30%, but levels should be maintained at about 50% the norm or 0.50 international units per 1 ml. Should the patient have a history of significant bleed and levels be under 0.3 as she approaches delivery, then management could be a combination of factors. It is all right to use desmopressin, but that's not the first line. And we're going to explain why in just a minute. Von Willebrand factor concentrate is preferred, and then using an antifibrinolytic like tranexamic acid is also a consideration. Now, it's not just giving the one gram over 10 minutes IV, but in these patients, it's taken in a specific way, and we're going to address that in just a minute. But remember, there's tranexamic acid, which is usually the parenteral form, and then there's the oral form, which is by brand name Listida, but any oral tranexamic acid will work here as well. That's the one catch. Typically, in labor and delivery, we do that as an IV, uh, you know, as an adjuvant dose into parenteral. But for these patients, this is given in an oral formula. We're going to discuss that in just a minute. Desmopressin has been around for a long time. I mean, I learned that in med school and it's still a thing, but you got to watch out for it, especially in pregnancy, okay? Because in pregnancy, it could be pretty tricky. That's why it's not first line. Desmopressin induces endothelial secretion of von Willebrand factor and factor 8. It's a synthetic analog of vasopressin. Remember, vasopressin is otherwise known as antidiuretic hormone, ADH, and that's the catch. If it's used, though, if you've got to use it, it can be administered IV at 0.3 micrograms per kilo with a maximum dose of 25 to 30 micrograms over 25 to 30 minutes. So that's how you remember that. The max is 25 to 30 micrograms over 25 to 30 
minutes. This can also be given intranasally at the dose of 300 micrograms. And it usually is prescribed in conjunction with a hematologist. So don't be ordering this by yourself. Make sure that you have a hematologist on board just to make sure you've covered all of the safety factors for this med. According to this clinical expert series, as well as the Hematology Society, this is only to be used if a patient has been known to have a good response to this. This is not a time to be experimenting with Desmopressin for the first time in pregnancy. So as it says in the clinical expert series, it's recommended that Desmopressin trial have been tried before for pregnancy to document that it works. Otherwise, the risks of this medication during pregnancy may exceed the benefit. The authors of this clinical expert series say that if testing has not been done before pregnancy, then they recommend the use of von Willebrand factor concentrates and TXA instead of desmopressin. And here's why. Oh boy, patients with postpartum hemorrhage are typically getting IV fluids, and then you give an ADH type of medication on board, and then the hypervolemia of pregnancy. Ooh, you got to be careful with that because life-threatening hyponatremia, seizures, and neurological injury may occur with the use of desmopressin in pregnancy. So if you're going to use it, avoid hypotonic fluids. In other words, it's much better to use normal saline, I think most people use as well, or lactated ringer, and then limit oral intake of water as well because of this ADH type effect. So do you see why desmopressin is not considered first line in pregnancy, except in certain conditions? If levels are particularly low, then you can order von Willebrand factor concentrates. Von Willebrand factor concentrates can either be plasma-derived or recombinant, and von Willebrand factor concentrates are approved for use in the U.S., now remember, as previously stated, at the time of delivery or any other invasive procedure, it's recommended to have a target factor 8 and a target von Willebrand factor activity that's greater than 0.5 international units per ml. Oh, and here's another clinical pearl talking about that value. So remember 0.5, right? We talked about 0.3 as a cutoff of what defines low. And then the goal in pregnancy around delivery is 0.5 international units per ml. But here's a great question for anesthesia. I mean, are you going to give a patient a spinal or an epidural with this? And the answer is yes. Neuraxial anesthesia is completely safe as long as von Willebrand factor activity levels are greater than that 0.5 cutoff. This value should be maintained while the catheter is in place and for at least six hours after removal. So we got six hours for the epidural or the spinal injection. Then you have three days where that level should be maintained for a vaginal delivery. And then remember, five days for cesarean birth. As we get ready to end the podcast, let's cover tranexamic acid. Remember that this comes in two main forms, either parenteral as an IV formula or oral. In pregnant women with von Willebrand disease, tranexamic acid is the most commonly used postpartum medication to prevent delayed onset of bleeding. Current guidelines suggest the use of oral tranexamic acid at a dose of one gram every eight hours for 10 to 14 days after delivery in all types of von Willebrand disease. That's a big clinical pearl. All right, that's why it's important to know which patients have this because whether or not they had postpartum hemorrhage, in order to prevent that transition as the levels go back down to non-pregnant state, especially in the first two weeks postpartum, remember that all patients with all types of von Willebrand disease should go home with tranexamic acid orally at a dose of one gram 
every 8 hours or TID for 10 to 14 days after delivery. And lastly, as we close the episode, von Willebrand disease is not an indication for cesarean delivery because the risk of fetal intracranial hemorrhage is extremely low. So that's different in certain types of hemophilia. So remember, von Willebrand disease is not an indication for cesarean section in and of itself. However, there is still some cautionary notes here. Even though a C-section isn't indicated, it's still recommended to avoid invasive procedures like the use of a fetal scalp electrode and, if possible, avoid operative vaginal deliveries in these patients. All right, so that's the flag. No, you don't need a C-section, but try to avoid any kind of fetal trauma because you never know what's going on with the child, okay? So remember, limit fetal scalp electrode and limit operative vaginal deliveries if possible. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We've covered a lot of info regarding von Willebrand disease, specifically in pregnancy. Ideally, patients would have had this diagnosis figured out before they get pregnant, but we don't live in a perfect world. But anyway, we've covered the Clinical Expert Series from March 2023 from the Green Journal, and I hope you found it helpful. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you in another episode of Clinical Pearls. (music) 